This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. Reverend Jane and Kevin Kubota and Reverend Tam. Qualify. Hello. There we go. That I'm the only non-minister on the panel. I'm a pseudo-minister, so. <laughs> not only space for people who were ordained in different New Thought traditions, like Reverend Tam, but also we have so many people who are in the process of becoming ministers like Kevin. And it's something that, you know, if, if there's ever been this piece of you that thinks, I'd like to do that, come and talk to me, because that, it really is achievable, and we're making room for that, so. Or Jane will come talk to you, like in my case. <laughs> the finger of God. <laughs> I got a good one. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Two words. Writer's block. I, t- I tend to think I am connected spiritually, with, especially with music. And when I sit down in those moments where I got to write something, it's like, it's not there, but in the middle of the night when I don't need to, I got tons of stuff. Writer's block, when you're consciously taking that, you know, you say sometimes take an hour a day to write or take 20 minutes a day to write. And when you, when I seem to, when I assign myself that 20 minutes, I got nothing. I got nothing in those 20 minutes that I give myself. What do you do? I want, I want you all to know that the moment Dave said, I have a really good one for you, Kevin handed me the mic and said, it's all yours. <laughs> um, Dave, in this particular area, I want to go back to my teachings when I was in ministry school. And we did a lot of left and right hand um, writing in the journal. And, you know, the, the belief is, is that spirit can speak to you and through you if you use your non-dominant hand. And so we had been doing that for a while, and I got to tell you, I have a lot of those journals, and I can't read a darn thing that I did in my left hand. Um, but then we reached a place probably halfway through the ministry program where our um, dean of students said, I want you to quiet your mind, come out of meditation, and ask spirit what is most important to come through you and to you right now. And I have to tell you, I still use it as an exercise. Um, When I give a talk in in the sanctuary, I spend time um, prepping what I think was supposed to come out. And then I go ahead and do that exercise, and it all changes over and over again. So perhaps that's a way to get to your inner voice and your inner spirit. I think, to stepping away from, I think, doing the work is critical. That You have to just sit down and do, even if it doesn't feel creative. I think you're doing the right thing. For me, that's what works, is just doing just keeping the ball rolling. You know, a rolling stone gathers no moss. I used to say a rolling stone gathers no sea moss, which is the early days of digital cameras, which nobody here is going to get that joke. So, okay. <laughs> but I think 
doing and then stopping, stepping away, and like Tamara said, letting spirit kind of work its magic. And that's kind of a, a creative thing is you have to step away from whatever it is you're working on for a little while to let it percolate in the back of your brain. But it, that goes hand in hand with actually regularly doing something, even if it doesn't feel that creative. Like you're not putting out anything, but man, your brain is working on stuff, uh, even if it's not exactly what you want. But when you step back and then come back to it later, with the idea that spirit's going to show you what needs to be said, it will happen. That's right. Just create. Create. <laughs> yeah, because because if if you're sitting there with your perfectionist hat on, and you're requiring that every word out of your mouth be something that people are going to be flocking to hear. You won't write anything. It's, you, you have to write the, you know, they call it the shitty first draft. That's what you have to write. Or second, and third, fourth draft. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, and you're the one that's, that's doing the measuring, but... Yeah, and, and the judge is not a very good musician. <laughs> if only you could see the look on his face. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, when I'm doing a talk, my process is, and it's certainly evolved over the years as I've been more experienced with it, because my very first talk, way back in the spiritual awareness community when I said, well, I'd like to do that, and I had never done anything like that, and they didn't ask for any proof that I thought I could, but I remember writing the whole thing out, and I was essentially reading it with, with white knuckles on the lectern, and that's where I started, and, you know, it, I guess it came out good anyway, but it, it shouldn't have, um, but now, I, ha I have whatever I think it is that I want to talk about, and I, I might be reading about it, and I'm thinking about it, and, and what I find is that ideas come to me through the week, and so it's, it's a power of intention, really, that this, this is something that you, you desire to create. And the word desire, if you break that down in Latin, it means from the Father. And Father is the source. That's how we understand it. So your desire is one with the source from which it comes. And so if you realize that and you don't put it outside of yourself and, and you just say, okay, this is what wants to be birthed in me. And then you, you just trust that because you are a powerful creator, you are one with the source, that it's going to flow forth. And, and you just keep, that's more of the practice than the writing or the playing is, is knowing who you are and what you have the power to do and what your desire is. And if it comes to you in the middle of the night, as it sometimes does to me, get up. <laughs> There's no judging what? There's no judge in that no, you just, no, there is no judge. I think that's, um, I just realized an interesting parallel with our creative journeys, our spiritual journey, and that creative process in that we have to practice. We have to come, we have to practice with daily prayer, daily meditations, reading inspiring things. Even when you're not feeling it, you're still practicing, you're doing 
And that's the only way that you're eventually going to have those ahas spiritually that make sense, that hits you like bam, you know, because you've been doing the practice. But I don't think if, you, if you're not doing the work, the practice, the daily routines of gathering, of sharing, of expressing, of meditation and prayer every day in some form, you're never going to actually have that creative aha moment that we're all looking for spiritually. The ahas? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, Thomas Edison, great example. Where's your sparkly dress? We wanted the sparkly dress. So I was reflecting on a couple different questions, and the one that comes to mind this time of year is unique. Being a spiritual person and growing up in a very, I would say, orthodox Catholic environment, it can oftentimes be challenging when you're trying to, you're coming into the holiday season, and you're and you have that side of you that really feels a deep connection to the season itself and to the connection to everyone in the community that happens oftentimes this time of year. Family can be challenging where they will use the season as the religious marker, the benefit of pointing to the season as the dynamic where, um, I would I, I want to say guilt, because it's a strong word, but I feel very proud of my own evolution and our, um, our growth through unity. And so my question is, what is the best way that you found in order to carry that flag of sp being a spiritual person high and being, uh, carrying yourself through the season and acknowledging that there's a lot of benefits that come through Christmas and through the holidays. But uh, how do you interact with maybe family that is much more critical, if you catch my drift? Are you talking about <laughs> criticizing you actively, like telling you you should be going to the Catholic Church? I would say that... I have been very fortunate to have family that has watched me evolve and grow in our, and, and Megan as well. And so they're, they have come to a point where they're proud of us in our own way. Um, but it's also, I would say it's a commonality in any family where you have uh, people of different religions all together, you know? And so my question is, is you can defend yourself and keep it, lighthearted as much as possible, but at the end of the day, um, for someone who is a devout believer, this is a very pivotal time of year. And so, um, what is the best way to, I guess, carry yourself through that, those conversations that come up this time of year? I, you know, it seems to me that one of the challenges as we find ourselves evolving spiritually is to be able to respect those who are still in the place from which we have evolved. And it's not that we are better than they are. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really important to understand, but it's hard to, it's hard to get that. It's just like, you know, when you grow physically, you know, now you're a big boy or a big girl and, and you don't want to be a little kid anymore. That's because you can do so much more and you don't want to be like that. And it's the same thing with our, our ideas that have evolved. We feel like they're better for us and so they're better for everybody. So we're back to the judge again. Um, so if you eliminated that and just said, this is right for them, this is healing for them, and this is what works for me, and not have to have it be a contest. And then you look for, because it's where you've come from, you look for what's the essence of those teachings that still resonates for you. And you see if you can find some language where you can, you can affirm commonality with them. So, Maybe, maybe it isn't like the baby Jesus isn't the thing for you, but the innocence that that expresses. Or, or it's the idea of into this world comes this, this being, which is all of us, that, that has the capacity to create peace on earth. And so what if you use their language and you call it baby Jesus? because you know what you mean by it, and you don't have anything to prove. So that, that might be a way that would be helpful. Does, does that help you? I, I, I feel like that there's so there's, much. Let me get this, just so people online can hear. There's a wide breadth of knowledge that I've gained in my two years here. Mm -hmm. I, I had no idea of what New Thought was. Mm -hmm. or uh, what Christian mysticism is or was, and who, like, for example, Meister Eckhart, and on and on, okay? So you had very critical thinkers who were secluded and hidden by, through, by the powers that be through history. And so there's a wealth of knowledge that is there to be had if you're looking for it. And so I feel uh, very blessed to have been able to gain that knowledge through being a member mm -hmm. um, and through my own self-discovery and through our writings that we have here at Unity. Um, but I completely agree with you. That's truly how I have found that that's what works best for me is when trying to draw a parallel with someone and try to create that familial love and connection is to not be critical mm -hmm. and to think about it as a, as a positive. Mm -hmm. And like you say, it's okay to use their language because to be honest, they might not understand yours. And so why fight it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I just thought I'd ask if there was any other, uh, any other tricks, any other experiences that you have found that have been beneficial. But mm -hmm. I think we are all on the same page. It's the that's the mature way of, of dealing with the, the dynamics that are. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. I, I can relate to that, and I've found that for myself, the further along I get on my spiritual growth, the easier it is for me to kind of let go of all the baggage I had and even my judgment about what other people, like Jane said, what their 
words they're using or what their beliefs are. And I think the best expression of where you are is when you can kind of rise above and be joyful, be unflappable in any family situation and dynamic when there's talk about religion or beliefs. You're just at peace with who you are, where you are, and who they are. And the more you can show everybody, I'm cool with it all, the more they're going to go, what's he on? You know, it's like, I'll have what he's having. <laughs> you know, the whole Harry and Sally thing. It's, that's the best thing you can do is just to live your light and let them wonder what's, what's going on with him that he's so amazing and so easy to get along with and so happy and so joyful. And he's not making any arguments at the family dinner table. What's up with that? You know? And, that's the best thing you can do. That's the best thing I've found. And it's not always easy to do, but the further along I get, it gets easier and easier for me. Dan, I may be the very best example up here of kind of a delete all thinking. Because my family denies I'm even an ordained minister. And it's been that way for a long time, and it used to hurt. And yet, what I really was wanting was to be seen. And recently, um, one of my friends is getting their certification in heart healing and asked me to be their guinea pig for their certification. And I, yes, we all have heart healing to do. And when you do go under the covers for me, my family of origin story is physical and emotional abuse from the paternal member of my family, who also happens to be the survivor of Nazi Germany, and deleted his Judaism in his lifetime. And so I grew up with no spiritual anything. And I think when I see them and I can love them exactly as they are, it came up such an incredible way during this heart healing because the practitioner said, can you imagine why your abuser did what they did? Do you know what their story is? And as I began to share what I now knew was my father's story, the practitioner and I were sobbing so hard, we had to stop. And so when we can look at anyone else and know their story is true for them. And whatever we do to heal ourselves is really the ultimate healing altogether. I had wanted them to see me, and it was probably the first time in my entire life I could see him for the first time and know that at the end of the day, my folks love me. They may not like my story, that was mine to figure out. But at the center of all of it, spirit, family, connection is the love. And so when we can walk in someone else's shoes and let their story to be true for them, as Kevin and Jane are saying, we get to be us. And so often that strife and that pain is feeling unseen. But how often are we seeing the one that is holding on to that truth and allowing it to be true for them. Somebody had a question coming in here um, about how do you learn to love when you haven't been given that nurturing? Because it, it reminds me of what you're saying with that. Do you want to 
keep going while you have the mic on that question? Help me with the question. <laughs> how do you learn to love? Ah, uh, how do you learn to love? I think it starts with learning to love ourselves and allowing ourselves to show up however we need to be and to turn over the outcome. I remember thinking how horrified I was that Kathy Lee Gifford, when she was on a show, would start every day. She's a very devout Christian, and her prayer before she went on stage was, may God take control of my mouth so I do no harm. And that is a sense of love. I mean, she was using her spiritual practices to focus on not hurting another while being in, you know, a media personality that got to say whatever they wanted when the microphone was on. And so the idea of love starts with self, starts with how are you practicing being kind and gentle and going about into the world assuming everyone has positive intent. I don't think anybody gets up every day and says, who in the heck can I ruin their day for? How do I do damage today? I don't think anybody shows up that way. But if we assume positive intent, we find a way to be self-loving and find the practices to infuse ourselves, I think it makes a huge difference in how we get through and how we see others in that loving form and how they show up. the person who asked the question answered her own question later and was saying, oh, get a dog. <laughs> 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 Which I think is a, actually a really good answer. Having, I, I think putting yourself in a position where there are others to be loved and recognizing that love has many expressions. So the, like the five love languages, a lot of you have heard that book, but it's the languages involve saying things to other people that are loving, you know, that are kind, that build them up. And so you could, you could make an intention every day to find somebody to lift up with your words. There's the love language of gifts. Maybe there's something that, you know, especially this time of year, there are all kinds of collections that are out there for kids that wouldn't get a gift you could buy a gift and put it in and just and infuse it with that energy of love. Even if you feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, but, but I know love is a thing and I want it to be there for, you know, and I'm gonna put it in here. So there, there's that, there's acts of service. You could volunteer and, and have it be from love. There's physical contact. Who, who needs a hug? Is there somebody that you could give a hug to? Oh, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, so you can do things like that. Um, but I think you're right, Tamara, in terms of self-love. You, you have to mind your own self. And, and what is it you need to feel loved? Because love is, is something that spills over. And so if, if you've got an empty tank, you have to attend to it. There, um, one of the books that's out there that Claire was talking about, I wrote a few years ago, Love Letters from the Mother. And it's, it was really, 
I don't want to say channeling like I sat there and took dictation, but my idea of channeling is that something moves through us and it's, it's the highest aspect of us. And so it was, what would the mother say to this one or to that one? And so there might be something in that book that you would feel if, if you feel unloved yourself, that maybe there's something that would speak to you in that and you can always pick it up and just flip open and see. Did you magically find the, the letter you needed? You know, there's things like that. Um, what, what is your love language? How do you feel loved? And then go and find a way to get that from someone, that expression of it, knowing that it's not separate from you. It isn't like you, you're here and love is there and you have to go over here to get love. No, it's it's a spilling over, you're just unconscious of it. I used to think that I wasn't at all intuitive and I had this idea of what intuition was and now I know it's like I'm insanely intuitive but, but I didn't know that then and so I had to do practices. I Actually, the non-dominant writing that Tamara was talking about was my practice for like five years. And through that, I connected to my intuition. So, so there might be a practice for you that helps you to connect with your love. So, yeah. I don't have really much to add. I want to get to these other questions, but I do want to emphasize the love languages and how important that was for me, as far as just my relationship, to express and let people know what your love language is, because if they don't know, they can't show you it. And that was super powerful for me and Claire, because one of mine is physical touch. That's one of my top love languages. And hers is acts of service. And so as soon as we communicated those things to each other, I was like, okay, so I'm not going to go and just hug her all day long and, and she's going to know I love her. I'm going to have to go take out the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and she can't just go and make dinner for me. And I mean, she can, and I'm not going to feel what she's feeling, but she needs to come over and hold my hand or give me a hug or play with my hair or whatever it is, you know, that's all. And then I'm like, oh, I'm good for another week. I'm perfect, you know. So I think communicating is so huge. Uh, and then it, it can change everything, really, just to let people know. And it doesn't have to be in a romantic relationship, just be friends. I mean, one of the reasons I love this place is I love hugs, and you guys are the best huggers everywhere. So uh, that fills my plate every week, to come here and just get hugs from everybody. So, yeah. Okay, we had a couple more, and then one in the back there, too. Oh, Kristen, too. I wanted to ask about talking to kids about unity beliefs, because unity beliefs are abstract, and I'm thinking of my son who's five, almost six, and he's a concrete thinker. So taking these abstract beliefs and making them more concrete so that kids can start to connect at a young age, and ideas you have about that. Uh, maybe metaphors, using metaphors? Uh, Hmm, it could be too, maybe. I'll talk about ways that he feels happy and alive and connected, like when he's really into Legos or when he's building something outside. Mm -hmm. And that's the same connection that we can feel to nature and to other people that connects us all. Mm -hmm. And he's like, eh, okay. You know, but 
but it's, I think of it maybe it's like planting seeds that then when they're able to cognitively start to understand it more mm -hmm. is available. Um, but I bet, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd be curious, can you give me a metaphor of, what are you thinking? Year, years ago, I mean, this was like 20 years ago and I so wish I had kept it, but I was teaching the um, middle school kids and I created this game and they had to um, pick something that was a circumstance and then they had to pick something that was a symbol and put it together and make a prayer. So like um, the puppy got hit by the car and a sunset and they had to put those together and make a, make a prayer with it. So it was a really cool thing, at least for that age, and I understand Finn is a lot littler than that, but, but taking the idea of saying, um, like give me a thing that, that Finn would want to understand or pray about. Have you got something? Um, he really wants to understand how the Titanic sank. Like truly, he's obsessed with the okay. Titanic. Okay, so you could talk about how, um, let me think about this. So what if you said that you don't know the answer to that, but, but you know that because it's such an important question for him, that the answer is in him. And it's a little bit like, like an acorn, that when you, you look at an acorn, it's small, and it's, it's just this little thing, but then it's gonna grow into this big tree. And so that knowledge is growing inside of him. And there's going to be a day when he completely understands the answer to that because it's an important seed. And it's like that with everything in life. The things that are important, when you recognize they're important to you, you recognize they're a seed that's growing in you. Because, you know, if you're using the word God or life force or whatever you're saying, that, that's active in you. It's everywhere, and it's in you. Does that help? Yeah, I think that's good. I'll just add to that, that I kind of learned later in my parenting um, that it's also okay, like Jane just said, that's kind of sparked a reminder for me that it's okay to say, I don't have that answer. And you know the best answer, or you will know the best answer, and, and give your children the responsibility of knowing that they have the answers inside of them and that you don't have to be the one that they turn to for all the answers, because parents, that's overwhelming, and it was for me, and it wasn't until I got uh, my kids a little older that I started to be able to let go of feeling like I was responsible for having the answers for them, and instead I just tried to live my truth the best I could and let them see how I lived, and that provided the answers, but also giving them the or putting the faith in them that they will know the right thing to say and do. I've raised five kids, and I'm up to four grandkids, and I never get this answer right. <laughs> so I can tell you the tools that I have used. There are two books by an amazing author named Holly Bea, B-E-A, 
And it, the first book is Where Does God Live? And the other book is My Spiritual Alphabet. And it is a gift I give when people are expecting the whole nine yards. But in the core, um, particularly where God lives, there's a little person that wants to know about God and goes to frogs and neighbors and, you know, trees. And it comes back to God is within you and is in everything and everyone. And what was interesting is, no matter which kid, what age I got them, two were fosters, one was step, and two we gave birth to to ourselves. Using that book, they found their own way to answer that question as it came up. You know, my youngest son, who will be 23, or 21 on the 23rd, he's decided on Catholicism as his spiritual practice. And that leaves him deeply connected to his father. And yet, sometimes, when things happen, you'll hear him with a quote from the book going, Mom, it's probably the frog thing, huh? And I'm like, I don't know if it's the frog thing, but what is your truth inside? And so I can't recommend these two books for parents, grandparents, but it's all about bringing him back to his inner knowing and that spirit is in him. And it is, as Jane and Kevin have said, in everything and everyone. And he gets to enjoy stumping you, as all of our children do. Um, and, you know, just look at him and award his amazement in the question itself. I think that's the biggest challenge for any of us as parents or grandparents when we think we have to have the answer. And I love that question. Thank you. Thank you. Really address some of these questions and I don't see why you couldn't borrow them. Yeah. We got some up in the booth too, Claire and right here. I think Unity does a wonderful job with gratitude and celebrations and the focus on joy. But I have yet to find um, any particular help for sadness, for grief, or pain. Mm -hmm. And I want to know about that. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it starts with acceptance of this, this is how you're feeling right now. This is what's true in your heart. And there's a thing called spiritual bypassing where, where you want it to be all lightness and joy, but it isn't all the time. We're, we're here in these human bodies, and even though we know that, like when someone has passed on that we loved, that they're dancing in the essence of life now, and, and they're still alive, we know that, that's an intellectual knowing. And in our hearts, we still feel sad because that's, that's the human journey. And, and what unity is teaching is that all of it is good. It's not just the, the light spiritual stuff. All of it, the human part of us is good. And, and so we be present with our sadness. And we just, we just allow it to be. And I don't know if there's, 
I don't know if there's more that's necessary there. It's, it's a form of self-love. Because otherwise, in some ways, you're criticizing yourself and you're saying, well, you should be feeling something different. There's something wrong with you for how you're feeling. And there's not. And, and I think there's giving yourself space for feeling that. And then, and then at some point, there's, there can be a natural, and now I want it, something else. Just like you know, eating a food, you can only eat a food so much, and then you need a different taste. You know? and, and so then you, and maybe you put some things in place that will help you, you know, like, you got the dog, and now the dog needs to get outside, <laughs> you know? And so it, it forces you to not dwell in sadness, but while you're there, you love yourself in sadness. Is that helpful? I think so. Yeah, I think that was, be I was just going to add that I, I agree that we, uh, as an organization, maybe ours, we do, we do really focus a lot on the positive, the joy, and I think it is important to also embrace the grief and be okay with expressing that, and that's maybe something that we could do as a community, is put more emphasis on allowing and more time to grieving together and supporting each other. Maybe we have a wailing, you know, we all get together and, and share what we're grieving. Um, so I agree, that's something that maybe we could improve on. Yeah, there was another hand going up here. More. There's one in the booth, Claire, you wanna grab? And then there's two more right in the front here. All right, I would love to know why you guys personally chose to take the path of ministry, what that means to you, and what that journey has been like for yourselves. It's a lot of questions in one. Yeah. It's really, that's a long answer. Um, my short answer is that the minister before me suggested it to me. And initially, I resisted it. Yeah. Yeah, it's what I do now, too. Yes, I know. Um, but that's how I got my start, was somebody suggested it. And, um, you know, I went through a process, and then, then I kind of walked away from it, and, and then I was... I was doing the non-dominant journaling thing and asking, at, at this particular time, I was journaling to Jesus and asking Jesus um, about, you know, wh what is mine to do? I was in this floating place of unsure of my purpose and blah, blah, blah. And, and um, what came out is, you are a minister. And <laughs> Say what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, and, and I don't know, there was something about that, even though I had been ordained by this previous minister before, it was something about that, that 
affirmation from what I was perceiving as the voice of Jesus that was like, yes. And I still had plenty of arguing that I was doing. Like, well, you know, I had my definition. If, if I were a minister, what would I have to talk about? You know, how would I find things to talk about? And um, that night I was watching um, some music program and Tina Turner was singing I Get By with a little help from my friends. Okay. And I was saying, oh, I could do a talk about that. And then <laughs> the next day I was in the car and Johnny Lang was singing Walk, Walk Through This World and I was saying, oh, I could do a talk on that. And, and so it was kind of reassuring me that, oh, I, I guess I'll figure it out as I go. I, I don't have to have the whole library of talks before I say yes to ministry. And, and for me, that's why Soul Shine is so important and why we go back and forth with what song is it gonna be because it's integral to my process for coming up with what I'm gonna talk about, so. Okay, I'll talk fast, which we know I can do. I was an accidental minister. I had no intention of becoming one. And I was in the midst of a divorce. I was 35, almost 36 years old. I walked in to talk to the minister that ran our community. And she gave me probably the best nugget I have ever heard in my life, and many of you have heard me share it. And I was crying because I was never going to have children. We already know from my previous answer that seemed to have worked out. And she said, I believe we're pregnant at all times. It may not be with a child. And from there, she gave me an assignment, and I created something within our community. And then six months later, she came in and told me that she'd been meditating, and whoever ran this cool thing that I had created needed to be ordained, and I was pissed. I think the ministry path is a calling that often doesn't appear as a gift. And so when Jane says, if you've ever thought about it, consider what you want to birth and how your voice will come through. And come talk to Jane, because every path will lead you to exactly where you're supposed to be. I'll real quick share that uh, my, I sort of realized that uh, I think probably some of the best ministers never woke up and said, I want to be a minister. They were sort of dragged into it, kicking and screaming like Jane and like I was <laughs> and Tamara was. And, and it's, it, it, for me, it was uh, something that I was so foreign to me and I was so afraid of that I felt like I had to look into it. And I was at a point in my life when my angels were, uh, were yelling at me, which was Jane primarily. <laughs> and I realized it. it it was a path that was so different, so scary, um, so completely not anything I'd ever thought of that if I didn't explore it, I would be missing out on something important in my life. And I decided to just follow it. And I still don't know where I'm going with it or what it's going to look like, but I know that it's brought me 
so many amazing uh, discoveries and gifts and people and experiences and joy and peace and so whatever it whatever it turns out to be I felt like it was the right path for me to to go on and it is right now and but I have a disclaimer that I can change my mind anytime I want minister in a family and and you're never too young to become a minister <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it mine's multi-part, so I'm going to have a hard time breaking this down and saying, oh, here's my question, but uh, so uh, there's a friend of mine, and she talks about this time of year being the long dark, and I know that I find myself in a place of deeper reflection, of spending more time indoors and thinking, well, what about this? And oh, I know these people, and how is it that they think that the way that they do? So I'm very fortunate to have two friends of mine that I've known since I was 12 years old, and wonderful people, you know? Both of them are very devout Christians, and yet at the same time, and, and I believe in God, and that's one of the things that we have in common is this belief in God and this belief in higher power and that sort of thing. And the the problem that I have is that we are on absolute opposite ends politically. And this is a time of year when we're entertaining people and we're reconnecting with people and we're having people over for Christmas dinner. So my question is one of, I want to understand. I have a tendency to look at things metaphorically. And I look at what's happening in Gaza right now. And hypothetically speaking, let's say that there is a God. Why would people take this stand of, well, this is my religion and this is my belief and that's what empowers me to be able to move into your country and bomb it and destroy it? I understand that Hamas is a very bad thing and Israelis want to get rid of it. But I'm just using this as like a metaphorical example. My question then, I would say, is... I want to connect. I would really love to reconnect with these friends of mine, but yet at the same time, I feel like there's this wall between us. There's been all this talk of, oh, we need to build a wall between Mexico and the United States, which I use as a metaphor to say that what we're doing is we're building walls between us. When we could look at this time of year, for example, as an opportunity to tear down those walls and try to come to a greater understanding. So my question, which I've come to it by a very long story, I'm sure, is how do you talk about the elephant in the room? How can you work to break down that barrier of you're stupid because you believe in this politically and they see us as, they, they perhaps see me as, oh, I'm stupid because I believe in this. How do you break down that wall? What can you do to... I've also learned in life that a lot of times if you just talk things out, that it really helps to come to a better understanding, especially in deep relationships. So that's my question. How do you talk about the elephant in the room? Necessary to talk about <laughs> politics, you know, but if for some reason it was compelling, I love your idea of the wall. And you could, I mean, the thing that everybody wants is peace. You know, everybody wants safety. 
they, they have I different ideas of how do you achieve that. That's where we, we vary, but, but the values of everybody should have enough, nobody's arguing with that. No, nobody has the belief, well, I think some people should not have enough and others should have plenty. But, but they're, they're all in a place of I want enough. And so those are some places where you can find agreement is in values, not means. I'll turn to Ted Lasso. <laughs> and be curious. There's no reason for you to prove you're right. I think when you can get to the point when you can let go of entering a conversation with the idea that you need to prove your side, then you can just be curious and listen to what they're all about. And that's really hard because when you're hearing things that you adamantly disagree with, your, your instinct is to, but, 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 don't, don't, don't. But if you can sit back and just allow them to share where they're coming from out of a place of pure curiosity, why do they feel this way? What did they have, what happened in their life that brought them to this point of this ideal? And that's it. There's no agenda to prove or to argue. It's just, I want to hear your side. And that's, that's worked with me because I have some, my, some of my best friends are completely 180 on the other side, religiously, you know, politically, everything. And the only way that I've been able to, to maintain my deep love for them is just curiosity and allowing myself, I don't need to prove I'm right because I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm happy with who I am and the, the, the family that I have, so there's no need for, for me to prove anything. Just tell me your side. Bond is so shine because it's a little heavy. What? We're supposed to do meditation, but I know we're running. All right. We'll postpone. Thank you, everybody. Yes. Thank you.